When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to review session number three. Uh, previously in session one, I went over the required court cases and the required court documents. Uh, in review session two, whenever unit one, the foundations with the constitutional underpinnings. Uh, this session is going to cover uh, unit two, college board unit two, uh, the interactions among the branches. It is the largest uh, of the 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 uh, units. It covers 25 to 36% of your exam. So let's jump right into it. Okay. So 2.1 is about Congress, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. Uh, you need to remember a couple of things here. Um, the legislative branch writes the laws. That is you know, their main job. Uh, while they have some checks and balances stuff, we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, the main goal of them is to legislate. All righty. Uh, the Senate is set up. To represent equally remember from the new jersey plan and the house is going to represent based on the population so the larger you are the more people you have and that's based on the virginia plan and then they combine them for the great compromise that we talked about in review session one um remember that they are different in sizes the house has 435 members and the senate has 100. so because of that difference uh it's going to cause some some differences uh the house has to be very rural oriented very uh, rigid might be a little bit strong of a term but they have to be pretty pretty strict on how much time they give to, to speakers and, and things like that because they don't have the time there's no way to let four and 35 people speak on the senate side they are able to be a little looser with the rules well, i should say looser with the rules but they're, they're more informal they can have more debate this is why you have the filibuster on the senate side and things like that uh the constituencies also make a difference remember that is the, the voters you know the house you're representing a small district of anywhere from probably 750 to 800 900 people versus the senate where you're representing the whole gambit of your state so you know for here in georgia you've got the metro area that you're representing but you're also representing the, the rural areas and agricultural areas and so just a, a lot of a, a difference there in, in what you're doing and what you have to accomplish when you have a small constituency versus a large constituency that's made up of so many different people. Uh, coalitions in Congress. So the coalitions, you might see, hear these sometimes referred to as caucuses. Uh, it's just the different groupings. So you have the Republicans, the Democrats, the independents and things like that, but you also have groupings within those groups. Uh, and it can be based a lot around um, economic issues, geographic areas, just any number of things, okay? Uh, racial lines, uh, there's all kinds of different groups uh, in Congress. And sometimes they're affected, you know, the standard says coalitions in Congress are affected by term length differences. Remember, the House is two years and the Senate is six. So you might, you know, it's it, the House is tougher to build those relationships because you might be there for two years and then you're gone uh, versus the Senate where you've got six years. So you have some time to, to work, and really build relationships and things like that. So you have that issue. 
Uh, next standard is the enumerated and implied powers in the Constitution allow the creation of public policy by Congress, which includes. All right, so the enumerated powers, remember, those are the ones that are spelled out. The implied powers are the ones necessary in proper clause stuff where, hey, it doesn't say it, but we can do it. All right, uh, passing the federal budget, <clears throat> raise the revenue, coin and money. Those are all things that the, the Congress has, and they're, they're, they're the ones that can do. Uh, declaring war, maintaining the armed forces, that's in the Constitution. Uh, they're the only ones that declare war. And this is why FDR had to call Congress back from a special, and do a special session to declare war with Japan after, uh, after uh, the Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Uh, enacting legislation that addresses a wide range of economic, environmental, and social issues based on the necessary and proper clause. So this is where we get into the implied stuff. Uh, all those different policies. Uh, you know, there's nowhere in the Constitution that says anything really about environmental policies, but we have environmental policies that Congress has passed because of the necessary and proper clause, because of the implied powers, because Congress has the ability to do things that aren't necessarily spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, section two, structures, powers, and functions of Congress. So, um, by design, the first standard says, by design, the different structures, powers, and functions of the Senate and the House of Representatives affect the policymaking process. Uh, and, and that's true because, uh, I should say it's true, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's a, a standard, but um, but they're getting back into the stuff we just talked about, how the Senate is set up one way, the House is set up another, and, and that's going to affect the the policymaking you know with the house you got 435 people you got to try and convince them since you only got 100 so you're looking at different things there the fact that people are in office for two years versus six years you have some different uh dynamics going on there because you, know, you only have two years to get stuff done or you only you have six years and you can kind of play the long game you can wait out some things so just uh those kind of different things happen and they affect uh how each side makes policy um and so there's that. Uh, the both general committees to conduct hearings and debates, bills, there's certain different constitutional response to the House, the Senate affect the policymaking process. So first off, let's talk about the committees. Both sides have those standing committees. Remember, that is where every bill is going to go uh, after it's introduced on the House or the Senate side. Okay, so it's going to go there. And that's where they'll work on it. They will also do other things other than bill making. They have oversight committees uh, or committees that perform oversight. Um, and uh, that's where they call in and conduct hearings and investigations into you know, bureaucratic agencies and things like that. Um, and so the committees is a huge system. You know, I've, I've told you in class many times, I had a vision when I was younger, much younger, that, you know, everybody's in, in the house, all working at their desk in the auditorium, getting things done. Same in the Senate. They're all in the auditorium, but they're never there. They're, they're, the, most of the work takes place in these smaller rooms in the committees where they actually get stuff done and accomplished. Very rarely do they meet all together. All right. Uh, chamber specific procedures, rules and roles that impact the policymaking process. All right. First off, the number of chamber and debate rules that set the bar high for building majority support. So, you know, they're they have all these procedures, procedural rules they have to follow. And uh, on the House side, they have tons of debate rules on the Senate side. Not as much, uh, but all that is going to play a role in getting people to say yes. You know, sometimes you. you, you People are debating an issue, and uh, it's like, I, I just I can't listen anymore, or whatever it might be. Uh, roles of the Speaker of the House, President of the Senate, party leadership, and the committee leadership of both chambers. So, uh, Speaker of the House is only the House side, most powerful position, because they really dictate to everybody else what's happening. Uh, they control the agenda. They control a lot of the committee, you know, uh, membership, committee chairs, um, and just they really dictate to the House 
what's going to happen. The president of the Senate, remember, is officially the vice president, but they're never there except to break a tie. And so uh, they don't really play that huge role. But there's the president for Tempor, which is kind of a figure. They don't do it's, it's more left to the majority and minority leader uh, to work out what's going to happen in the agenda in the Senate. And typically nowadays, we've let the majority leader really drive things uh, over there. OK, uh, party leadership. So you have the majority leader, the minority leader. Uh, they work with the Speaker of the House on the House side. Uh, they'll work with the, the other members of their party on the Senate side. Uh, to to get stuff on the agenda and get things done, and to make you know the minority party is going to work to to kind of roadblock the majority party with a filibuster on the Senate side and, and things like that. Uh, let's see, committee leadership. The committees are always chaired by the majority party, uh, so they get to really dictate uh, what happens in the committees, and so that's a huge deal. That's why it's so important to be the majority. Uh, on both sides because you get to run so many things and control so many things. Uh, the filibuster and the cloture. Filibuster, this is where you can try and delay action on a bill. Remember, it, we say a lot of times, hey, talk a bill to death. And in theory, I guess it's kind of the true, but the filibuster, you don't really kill a bill with a filibuster, but you delay action on other things and you're trying to put pressure on the majority party. Hey, you've got all this other stuff coming that you want to get done, but we're going to sit here and talk about this for two, three, four days and we're going to <clears throat> pretty much put a hold <clears throat> or stop to everything else you want to do. Uh, cloture can stop a, a, a filibuster. From a cloture is where someone has made a motion to end debate and let's vote on the issue right now. So you, know, you, you have all this time allotted for debate. But let's have a cloture vote and let's end debate and let's uh, let's vote on the issue right away. You need 60. That's a tough number to get. Holds and unanimous consent in the Senate. So the hold, this is where a single senator can put a hold on something. It used to be really kind of necessary because you do represent such a wide variety of people. Uh, you wouldn't be familiar with every bill. And so you might go to a, the leadership and say, hey, I need a day or two to look at this bill to see how it's going to help hurt my constituents. That's putting a hold on it. Today, it can be used as a tool to, to stop stuff you don't want uh, to pass. Okay. Uh, unanimous consent. Uh, this is where you basically get rid of some parliamentary procedure, okay? Um, and you could make make changes to the rules and, and things like that uh, of, of getting stuff done. Rule, role of the Rules Committee, Committee of the Whole and Discharge Petitions in the House. So the Rules Committee, this is the most powerful committee on, on really both sides. The Judicial Committee is pretty powerful on the Senate side uh, because they do control all the Senate, uh, I mean, not the Senate, but the judgeships. But the Rules Committee, uh, after every bill comes out of the uh, regular committee, they go to the, the Rules Committee for basically to be put on the agenda. And the Rules Committee can set debate schedules, put it on the agenda, put it on the calendar. They can dictate a lot of things that go into the the, the law or the, the, the debate and the vote to, that could you know, potentially get passed and, and, or not. Uh, committee of the Whole. So this is a House thing. Uh, in order to get around the rules they have in place for debate, sometimes they will say, well, hey, let's just all become one big giant committee, okay? Um, and we can debate things forever if we want to because there's no rules dictating stuff in the committee. So if they become the committee of the whole, all it means is they are pretending like they're one giant committee versus being the House and they get around some of the House rules that are there to avoid those things. Uh, and then discharge petitions in the House. So if something has sat in a committee for a certain amount of time, uh, you can make a discharge petition to bring it out without the committee actually voting on it. You know, you can do this, but typically you're not going to have much success because it sat there for a reason, you know, and if you don't have support, uh, it's probably not going to make it out of the committee. And then if you discharge it, is it really going to have any success? 
Uh, treaty ratification and confirmation rule of the Senate. So be sure you're specific here. If you ever talk about this stuff, the Senate is the only one that will take a look at treaties uh, and confirm uh, you know, cabinet positions, judgeships, and things like that. So be sure if you're right about that, that you, you know the Senate's the only one that does that. Uh, Congress must generate a budget that addresses both discretionary and mandatory spending. As entitlement costs grow, discretionary spending opportunities will decrease unless tax revenues increase or the budget deficit increases. So with this one, uh, first off, discretionary and mandatory spending. Discretionary spending, this is stuff they get to make choices on. Hey, we want to spend on this project. We want to spend on this project. Let's do it. Mandatory is programs that they have to spend on. They've written it into the law that they have to spend on these things. So think uh, welfare uh, programs, some of the like social uh, Social Security and things like that. There is no, well, let's not spend as much on, on Social Security this year as we did last year. They have to spend on this mandatory. Okay. Uh, entitlement costs, those are programs that you're entitled to, right? No matter what, uh, I use Social Security all the time for this because you're going to get that regardless. Whether you win a $1 billion lottery or you're struggling by, you're still going to get that Social Security check because you are entitled to it. The other thing is means tested, which isn't in here, but just so you know, this is where. Uh, you have to hit a certain level of poverty to, to qualify for something potentially. All right. And I use the, the medical insurance and I always get Medicaid and Medicare confused. And I apologize for that. But uh, whichever one is for low income, you have to hit a certain level, you know, a certain threshold of income before you can qualify or make it so little. Uh, da -da -da -da. Okay. Pork barrel legislation, log rolling, uh, pork barrel. These are those pet projects by congressmen that, um, Benefits really only their district, a lot of spending stuff, a lot of you know, building programs and things like that. And then they can credit claim. Hey, I got all this money for this district. I got these jobs that help the city. And then log run, those are just the favors they do for each other. All right. So just the favors they do for each other. Uh, and look at the clock. I, I might do two sessions for this, just so you know. Uh, all right. Point three, congressional behavior. Um, or this one might go long. I might do this session and then... Uh, you know, record a second one and put them both in there. So it might, this might be the longest one, and I apologize for that. Uh, all right. Ideological divisions within Congress that can lead to gridlock or create the need for negotiation and compromise. So <clears throat> you've got the, the two parties, Republicans and Democrats. If they are pretty close, you know, you run into some issues where people are voting down party lines and things like that, and it really does create this gridlock. Or if you have the House controlled by one side, the Senate controlled by another, they can both put up roadblocks. Remember, we talked about in, in session one, or excuse me, session two, about how Congress is checking balance on itself. The same bill has to pass both the House and the Senate, and they can put up some roadblocks to each other there. So that, that can happen. Uh, and then that's when you have to get into that log rolling thing where you have to compromise. You have to give in some things uh, to the other side. Um, gerrymandering, redistricting, and unequal representation of constituencies have been partially addressed by the Supreme Court. So you've got two court cases we talked about in review session one, Baker versus Carr, Shaw versus Reno. I'll talk about those very briefly because I've already done that. But the gerrymandering stuff, you know, remember gerrymandering happens when we redistrict. Redistricting happens, it can't happen every 10 years uh, that goes along with reapportionment. So let's let's address those three things real quick. So reapportionment happens when uh, a state either gains or loses seats. Remember the House is set at 435, uh, and based on the population numbers from the Senate, I mean, from the census, um, some states could gain, some states could lose. So if Georgia was to gain a seat, go to 17, that means we would have reapportioned from 16 seats to 17 seats. Excuse me, 14 to 15. I apologize. Um, and we would be reapportioned. And let's say that Ohio lost them 
they have 16 house seats, they would go to 15. So that'd be reapportioned. So the, the shifting of the numbers in the house uh, to make sure every state is represented as they're supposed to. When that happens, or even if it doesn't, states can redistrict based on the population numbers in their, their, their state. So let's say that Georgia does not get reapportioned. We stay at 14 House members, but we still want to redistrict because the numbers have shifted. There's more people in the metro area than there are in the rural areas and things like that. So we will redistrict and we will draw, redraw the lines. Remember, that is a state thing only. Okay, The state legislatures handle that. I personally think there should be an independent commission that does it. That could maybe get rid of some of this gerrymandering stuff, but uh, we don't do that. So the, the, the state legislatures will redistrict, will redraw the lines. That potentially leads to the gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is where the lines are drawn to benefit one party over the other. And please don't think this is a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. It is both sides. Both sides will do this and draw lines that are favorable to themselves. Uh, and we got into some of the stuff when we took this in class, the cracking and the packing and things like that. There's other things like kidnapping the district and stuff like that. But if you can just understand that gerrymandering is where you're drawing the lines during the redistricting process to benefit your party, uh, then that's pretty good shape. All right, Baker versus Carr and Shaw versus Reno. Very quickly, because I've already went over those in review session one. So if you need to refresher on those, go back to that. Baker versus Carr is not a gerrymandering case. It is a redistricting case. But the important part is that it got the courts to start looking at redistricting at gerrymandering as a as an issue that they could answer because up to this point they said no that's not a political that's a political issue we're not going to take a look at it. so that's a, that's the important part of that uh the shaw versus reno was actually a gerrymandering thing i remember this dealt with the uh the uh, uh line up in north carolina uh and drawn along, along racial lines and things like that uh, and so that's where that comes from Okay. Uh, elections that have led to a divided government, including partisan votes against presidential initiatives and congressional refusal to confirm appointments of lame duck presidents of the opposite party. So, uh, you know, divided government, that's where you have a president from one party, um, House and Senate is from a different party, or the House and the Senate are separated. You know, there's all kinds of things that can lead to this divided government. And because of that, you know, if, the, if Congress you know, if Donald Trump had won this past election, it would have been a, a Democratic-controlled Congress and a Republican president. Stuff doesn't get done. This, that's not least a more gridlock. And we have had it happen uh, throughout our history. When President Obama had faced this. Uh, like I said, Donald Trump would have had it had he, had he won. Uh, it's, just, it's something that happens, and it, it leads to those problems. Uh, I personally think that uh, a portion of it is actually pretty good, um, but, you know, um, we don't, don't need it. So I'm going to stop here for just a second. All right. So just picking up, uh, you know, we're talking about elections and, and uh, the consequences and stuff like that. Uh, real quick, the, the we were talking about divided government and um, Donald Trump faces. It wasn't divided because the Republicans were still in charge, but there was a lot of uh, people that did not like his, his picks for uh, cabinet positions and, and you know, well founded. Uh, but the Democrats fought every single one of them. And I think, you know, had they been the majority party, obviously they would have some success. Uh, and I think they would have had some success had they kind of chosen their battles instead of fighting every single one. But that's not what we're talking about there. And then the lame duck presidency. Remember, this is where the president, you know, Donald Trump faced this because he lost his reelection bid. But then there was, you know, two, three months there, um, November, December and part of January, where, you know, he was leaving office, you know, no matter what was said. Uh, he was leaving, so uh, no one wants to work with, with people there. All right. Uh, the different role of conceptions of trustee, delegate, and politico as related to constituent accountability in each chamber. So 
real quick, what these are. Uh, the trustee, this is where, you know, congressmen believe that they have been trusted to make decisions and they're going to make decisions based on what they believe. Alrighty. Uh, it doesn't matter if my constituency goes against it. I'm going to make that decision. Delegate is where I'm going to make the decision no matter what for you, right? even if I don't agree with it. And the Politico is where you combine the two. All right. Going on to the roles and the powers of the president. Um, so we did the seven roles, you know, of the presidency and, uh, we kind of break it down. The, the standards are broken down a little bit differently than that. We, we cover everything in those seven roles. So I'm not going to really go over the roles, but I'm going to go over the, the uh, standards that we have here. All right. So remember, the president is supposed to enforce the laws. That is their job. Uh, and they have some powers and stuff like that over, the, uh, over Congress. But let's just go through the standards here of what they can do. So first of all, vetoes and pocket vetoes. Vetoes, remember, that is just where they say we're not, we're not doing this. It can always be overridden. doesn't happen as often as you would think, but uh, the veto is a powerful tool for the president. Uh, they can do a couple things with it. Obviously, stop pieces of legislation, but they can also threaten the veto early. They say, hey, you're working on that bill, but if you do this or that to it, I'm not going to sign it. So, you know, I'm going to veto it. Uh, maybe that forces Congress to make some changes. Uh, the pocket veto, this is where if they, if Congress gives the president a bill 10 days outside of them leaving, a session, the president can just let it sit and it'll die because everything starts over. If things have to get done during the congressional session, if they're not, then they start over. Okay. Uh, foreign policy, some formal stuff. They're the commander in chief. They can make treaties. Uh, I think those are pretty simple things that people are, aren't going to understand. Uh, remember, informally, they have the executive agreement when it comes to foreign policy. And remember, that is where they can make deals with foreign countries that get around the Senate approval. So the Senate has to approve all treaties, but they don't think they don't get to approve uh, executive agreements. So that's a pretty big thing. Uh, the bargaining and persuasion thing. This is an informal power. Uh, the president has this ability, at least we want him to, to be able to make deals and to persuade people to, to do and get on board with their agenda. Typically, Congress will start off, no matter what, working towards the president's agenda because that's what they ran on. And that's what the people said they want, said, said they want in their in their vote. Uh, so they'll work with them. But then once we get past that period, uh, sometimes Congress doesn't always want to work with the president. And so the president needs to be able to persuade people, hey, this is the best. Hey, I need your vote on this issue or whatever it might be. Uh, and that could also be into the bully pulpit where they have that ability to talk directly to the American people. Think of FDR and the fireside chats and things like that. Executive orders. Uh, this is implied from the president's vested executive power. All right. So this is an informal thing. They can, it's not in the Constitution, but it's something they can do. Now, what I need you to remember, it does have the force of law behind it because it's going to be enforced by the agencies that uh, the president is in charge of, but it is just a directive to those agencies. It is not like a law. I mean, it kind of is because it has the force of law behind it because it can be enforced, but it's not like it's going into the books and, and, and you know, states and everybody else is responsible for it like other things are. So uh, while states might sometimes enforce stuff, it's really up to the agencies to enforce it, but it's something the president remember, can do and then Congress does not get to look it over. So that's a big deal. Um, Congress can affect both executive agreements and executive wars by not funding stuff. Uh, they can make laws that kill it, get rid of it, uh, do budgetary things or whatever it might be. So they do have some options if they get it. Uh, finally, for this part is the signing statements. The, this is an informal power that informs Congress and the public of the president's interpretation of law. So when the, con when the president signs a bill into law, the president gets to interpret 
and dictate, this is how I view this bill. This is how we're going to uh, enforce it. Okay. Point five is the checks on the presidency. So uh, you have conflict with the Senate based on the cabinet, the ambassadors, White House staff, uh, judges and things like that, because the Senate are the ones, remember, that approve all of those appointments by the president. And, and please don't forget, it's Senate only. So if you're writing an FRQ on this stuff, it is only the Senate. Do not say con don't say Congress. You're not going to get full credit for it. All right. Uh, and some of these are more um, contentious than others. Typically, the judgeships are the most content most contentious because of the lifetime terms that come with it. Cabinet members, staff, all they they have a, a shelf life. You know, they're going to be there as long as the president's going to potentially be there. So. Um, sometimes they'll get passed through versus a judge. Um, you know, we just talked about the, the judges and, and why it's such a contentious thing because of the lifetime terms. And I, I think that's a, a pretty, I don't want to say easy thing to understand, but you know, when people are going to be there for 30, 40 years, that's a long time. So, <clears throat> okay. Uh, six, the expansion of the presidential power. Uh, you got a couple things here. Uh, Fed 70 is one of them. Remember, that's talking about the single uh, presidency. Uh, we did this in the in review session one, so if you need the refresher, you can go there. Uh, but Fed 70 is a required document, if you aware of that. Uh, the term of office and constitutional power restrictions, including the passage of the 22nd Amendment. Um, so there's a couple of presidential amendments, you know, the presidential elections with the 12th Amendment, um, the Obviously, the, the 20th Amendment, which sets the, the inauguration date for the 20th, uh, the 22nd Amendment, which sets the fact that you cannot run for president more than two terms. You got eight years or 10 years. Yeah, 10 years or two terms. Remember, you can be the, the vice president and take over and get some extra years there. And then the 25th Amendment, which science sets the line of succession. OK. Uh, and the, the president has just expanded their power this stuff. Uh, 2.7, presidential communication. Uh, this one, you know, the president talks to the American people and they they have a, a, a form that no one else does. They can get on their social media. They can call for press conferences. They can you know, just go out to the American people and people are going to come and hear their, their story. Uh, social media has obviously played a role in uh, allow the president to speak directly to the American people and get around some of the media outlets that are out there. Uh, so that's a huge deal. The State of the Union is now broadcast to everybody. So everybody can see it and watch it. Someone told me that Biden has one coming up on the 28th. So if you want to watch that, that would be a good idea. Uh, 2.8, the judicial branch. So you've got a couple of required things here. You've got the Constitution, Fed 78, Marbury versus Madison. Just real quick, Fed 78, remember this talks about how the 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 judicial branch is going to be the weakest branch because they are reliant on other branches to enforce any of their stuff. You know they don't get to to do their own thing. So just keep that in mind. Um, they are created out of Article Three, uh, but Congress can can affect the the courts in a number of ways. Uh, jurisdiction, uh, geographic areas, uh, they get to set a number of judicial, I mean, uh, Supreme Court justices and just things like that. So, uh, and then Marbury versus Madison, one you're probably familiar with from, uh, what you call it, the uh, U.S. history that gave, set up judicial review. Uh, let's see, point nine, the legitimacy of the judicial branch. So you've got uh, precedence and stare decisis. 
remember, precedents are those cases that have been that have happened that have really kind of set law for the next few years. Think Brown versus Board of Education. That's a precedent setting case. Roe versus Wade. That's a precedent setting case. Those are cases that are kind of ironclad. I shouldn't say ironclad because they can be overturned. Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned for, for you know for good measure and, and and things like that. But those precedent setting cases, they're the cases that uh, you know, the judges are going to look at and be like, we don't have to hear this case again. We already did this. We already settled this in in that case back then. All right. Stare decisis <clears throat> is the process of using those precedent setting cases and just any other case really to help you settle. A case. This is why if you watch law shows, you'll see lawyers, you know, the main lawyer telling their associates, go find me a case that, that is similar to this. Give me a decision that I want. It's because they're going to ask the judge to use stare decisis, basically, to help them make their decisions. Uh, let's see. The ideological changes in the composition of the Supreme Court due to the president's appointments have led to courts establishing new or rejecting existing precedents. Uh, yeah, Trump got to put a, a three conservative judges on. So there was a fear that the conservatives were going to try and overturn Roe versus Wade. And that's what we're talking about here. The, as the ebb and flow of the courts happened, stuff that left-leaning judges did gets overturned by right-leaning judges and then vice versa, right? You know, that's the decisions they're talking about there. Uh, the court in action. So the Supreme Court is protected. You know, they cannot be fired. They cannot have their salaries reduced. Um, they're really insulated from both the public and the rest of the, the branches. There's not a lot that Congress can do. There's not a lot that the president can do uh, to challenge these, these judges. Now, with that said, the court is reliant on these other branches to get things done. So, you know, my famous, or not my famous, but what I like is uh, Jackson to John Marshall. Hey, you made your decision about the Cherokee. Now you come and enforce it and refuse to enforce it. Um, so you know, Brown versus Board took the South forever to enforce the decision of integrating schools. So you've got this kind of stuff that happens. Um, and, you know, really how powerful is the courts when they have to rely on other groups? All right. Uh, the courts, I mean, not the courts, but Congress can make laws. They go through the amendment route. So there's just a couple of things they can do. Uh, checks on the judicial branch. Uh, you get activism versus restraint. First off, remember, activism is where the judges are making, taking an active role in making laws uh, through their decisions. And then restraint is where they're going to use the Constitution, original intent. Let's not take this active role. Let's do only what the Constitution says, only what the founding fathers had wanted. Um, restrictions on the Supreme Court are represented by congressional legislation to modify the impact of Supreme Court decisions. So like we said, Congress can make laws that affect Supreme Court decisions or counteract. Uh, constitutional amendments, remember that is <coughs> president and court proof. They cannot declare a constitutional amendment as unconstitutional. The appointments and confirmations, president gets to pick their people. So that's going to play a role and influence who's on the, on the courts. And then the Senate gets to confirm them. Uh, the president and states evaded or ignoring Supreme Court decisions. We talked about that. And then legislation impacting court jurisdiction. This is something Congress can do. Let's say that, that you know, there's three jurisdictions or three district courts here in Georgia. Uh, if one is upsetting or making the, the Congress mad, they can always redistrict and change it to two or whatever it might be. OK. All right. Point 12. Uh, the last little bit here. And I'm going to try to go quick because I want to. I've already gone way longer than I wanted to. Um, the bureaucracy. All right. So. Um, 
the first thing is just overall, you know, kind of tasks performed by the departments, agencies, commissions, and government corporations. So all those different things. Remember, you got uh, independent regulatory agencies, independent executive agencies, government corporations, and the cabinet positions. And they all do different things. But at the heart of it, they're all trying to uh, enforce laws and, and help the president enforce uh, laws, the court decisions of the, the country. So what can they do? Well, they can write and enforce regulations. So when a law comes to them, they get to interpret it. And make decisions about it and make enforcement decisions. Uh, they get to issue fines. You know, the FCC fines people all the time for putting stuff that's not supposed to be on the airwaves on the airwaves. Uh, they are called before Congress to testify quite often uh, with those oversight hearings. And then the issue networks and the iron triangles. Iron triangles we did a couple of different times. And that is that relationship between interest groups, the congressional committees and the bureaucratic agencies. Issue networks you just throw in the media and a couple other groups there. Uh, patronage, civil service, and merit systems. Remember, that comes from Garfield. We used to do where you got hired based on who you knew, not necessarily what you'd done to earn it. Okay, and then we're going to go with the civil service exam and the merit based system where you have to actually earn your new positions. And it's in theory made the bureaucracy more effective. Uh, discretionary and rulemaking authority to implement policy are given to bureaucratic agencies, uh, and they include I'm just going to list them off real quick Homeland Security, Transportation. Veterans Affairs, Education, uh, the EPA, FEC, and the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. What we're talking about here is these groups and other groups like them have a lot of power, a lot of ability to make rules and make laws that they're going to enforce, not necessarily from Congress, but in the policy making that they do within themselves. The EPA gets a law, they get to write up how they're going to enforce it. They get to create the policies that, that they're going to enforce. So that's where we get the discretionary rulemaking authority. 14, uh, holding the bureaucracy accountable. Uh, so Congress, remember, they have the power of the purse. That's the big one. They control the, the money. So they can do a lot of stuff there to, to hurt an agency or to help an agency through the money. They also have committee hearings where these people get called in and questioned. Hey, you're not EPA. You're not doing this. Why not? You're not enforcing this law like we envisioned. Why not? And they have to answer questions, and that can lead to some serious consequences. All right. Um, the president, you know, they pick a lot of these people uh, for the department heads, so their vision is going to be played out that way. Uh, and then policy and the branches of government, formal empires of Congress, the president, and courts over the bureaucracy are used to maintain its accountability. So it just goes back to those checks and balances we talked about where the president and Congress has some things they can do and the courts can do over the bureaucracy. The courts can always rule uh, some policy the bureaucracy is enforcing or some you know, something they've created as unconstitutional and they got to stop. Uh, the president gets to pick a lot of the department heads and things like that. So that's going to be that vision. Uh, Congress can call them in for oversight hearings. They can uh, do the budget and control it that way. So. Um, yeah. Whew, I went way long. I'm sorry for the pause in the middle. Uh, someone came into my classroom and was talking to me, so I apologize for that. Uh, and I'm sorry this one went longer than uh, most of the other ones. I do I do value your time, and uh, I am trying to, to limit it. That's why I went so quick. So if there's something you want me to cover uh, more in depth with you from this section, please let me know. Uh, I will be happy to. Remember, as always, you can hit me up on the text remind. You can email me at the school email or coach D underscore 1977 at yahoo.com, and I'll answer questions there or if you want to join the conversation on twitter feel free to hit me up on uh, k daniels ap gov and i will answer your questions there so we'll get this thing done and rock that ap exam on may 3rd 
Guys, I hope all is well. Take care uh, and finish strong this semester. Let me know if I can do anything for you. Later.